Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So for investors worldwide, it has been very painful to sit out Q1, closing out the quarter with massive gains across asset classes, across regions, geographies, globally, in the face of escalating growth concerns. With us in the studio, I'm pleased to say Chris Verone, Strategus Partner and Head of Technical Strategy. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Jonathan. Happy to be here. Great to have you with us. Let's just start with all of these underlying tensions that are so difficult to reconcile. What do you see in the price action? Well, I think the most difficult question out there is when we look at the divergent that's opened up between stocks and bonds, is it a risk to equities that bond yields are making new lows or are stocks up because bond yields are down, right? That is the central question of this moment. There's a couple things I can't reconcile with lower bond yields. If lower bond yields are sending a message about growth or recession, why has copper hung in there so well? Why is discretionary largely done better than staples this quarter? Why are the European luxury stocks all making new highs? Why do Chinese equities act well? So there's some things that don't square with the lower bond yields are recessionary story. That's what we're trying to reconcile. I would go even further. I'd look at the FX market, the classic risk aversion trade. I'd expect Aussie yen to have done something. Aussie yen has done nothing for three months. Nor has euro yen, nor has dollar yen. I mean, the yen pairs as a barometer of risk appetite or a barometer of carry trades have really been indifferent here. I don't think, and you know, you look at yen in particular, the correlation with yen and rates has been um, very meaningful over the last decade. That seems to have broken down here a little bit. So add that to the list of divergences we're having a tough time reconciling. We were talking uh, off air about, well, twos and tens have flattened. Twos and thirties have actually steepened meaning here. So there's a difference in what we're seeing from the long end of the curve uh, yeah. here as well. So let's talk about the curve inversion, Chris, because what's great about some of the hard work you do is you crunch the numbers and you go back decades. It is really peculiar to have this inversion led ultimately by T-bills in a very front end, yeah. twos through to fives, rallying. And then we get this weird inversion at the front where three-month bill yields are above the 10-year yield. And then go further out. If you just take the T-bill market out of the equation, we've had a bull steepener at the same time. Yeah, it's not unusual. It's unprecedented. We went back to 1965, and we can't find another uh, observation in history where uh, three-month, 10 years are inverted, while twos and thirties are actually steepening, and steepening meaningfully here. Uh, twos and thirties have gone from 20 bips to 50 bips uh, over the last number okay. of months. All my radar goes up when I hear the word unprecedented. Define that. I mean, what's the why of unprecedented? Well, I think the why of unprecedented is just look where German yields trade. They trade through Japanese JGBs today. So there's a lot of unprecedented things. It's only the third time that's happened in 30 years where Japanese. So is your world, the diverse cross-asset world of Christopher Verone, is it basically waiting for the EU banking system to clear? I Are think, we all waiting for the EU banking system to clear? I think there's a lot of noise coming from sovereign bond yields. I'm not convinced how much signal is coming from sovereign bond yields. We've heard that, John, in a number of interviews over the last 48 hours. Well, there's a ton of distortions. 
a ton of distortions. You can start with the trillions of dollars of negative yielding assets. Here in the United States, I just wonder how distorted the curve is because of the massive T-bill issuance we've had over the last year as well, Chris. How much of a factor is that? Listen, I think we need to be careful that we don't make too many excuses for an inverted curve. No matter how it inverts, it still inverts and it alters behavior. So we need to respect that. that. But what I think is important is when we look at something like three months versus 10 years and we back tested this extensively over the last 50 years, you don't really begin to see forward S&P returns start to deteriorate until about nine to 12 months in the future. So even with the backdrop of inverted curve, let's say inverted for all the reasons it typically does, it still buys you some time before future returns really start to suffer. So the important question is the lag time, Mm. whether you believe in the curve or not. So what do you do for the next 12 months? I think tactically, let's speak tactically here first, maybe next several months, I think sentiment has gotten too extreme with the long bond call. There's a lot of extremes that have recently showed up. We mentioned German tens through Japanese tens. That is unusual. That has marked periods where you've seen steepeners or higher bond yields uh, in the past. I would add to that, if you look at some measures of bond sentiment, they're starting to get a little bit frothy here. What I'm watching today more than anything, I think this is the most important thing to uh, everyone out there to pay attention to. We're going to get positioning data on 10-year Treasury note uh, today at 3.30 p.m. That is going to tell us a lot about how aggressive the street has gotten on the long side of the bond trade. People were massively short bonds in the fourth quarter of last year. We've started yeah. to see a big shift there. I, I imagine the shorts have totally capitulated. Uh, I think that's what I agree. people are going to be looking for. Chris, just listening to you, when you look at risk and the risk that's been taken in fixed income, duration risk, credit risk, you're saying duration risk is the biggest factor here? I think, especially in the short term. And you know what's notable about this move lower in yields relative to 2011 or relative to 2015 or uh, or even last quarter, you haven't seen stress out of high yield credit in the US over the last couple of weeks. The credit markets have been remarkably benign despite what people perceive to be recession risk from the curve uh, and from bond yields. I think that's a very important distinction to make here. So we've had a, mi- a big quarter, equities, yeah. credit, core government bonds globally, not just in the United States, but worldwide. Talk to me a little bit about participation. How many people have just spectated and sat this out? You know, I I think when you look at the fourth quarter and then you uh, look at the reversal we saw in the first quarter, I think it's very difficult for fund managers to have underperformed in 2018 because they were involved and to also underperform in 2019 because they were not uh, involved. I think there's a little bit of a FOMO uh, that likely persists as we move through the year. Now, I recognize we just had a 12% quarter. Um, it, would it shock me if the market paused or even corrected uh, in the second or third quarter of 2019? It would not. I think 2012 was a very interesting comp. You had a very good market low in 2011. You rallied hard in the first quarter of 2012. Yeah, yeah. Then you went nowhere for six months. Interesting, interesting. I mean, we, we, we just simply don't know on all those trends. But, John, I think we can agree that we're just slaves to where the yields are right now. Granted, with yield, I mean, the Swiss 20-year was negative, and it's up four basis points off that. I mean, I guess it's off the mat the last day of the quarter. The moves have been totally remarkable. Just a final right. word from you, Chris. I know you wanted to get a word thing in on, on all things Brexit. Yeah. You, you want to weigh in. Please do. I, I, I this is just a harass pharaoh, right? I want to weigh in with the simple observation. You know, we look at what's going on in front of Parliament today. We look at what's going on in Parliament today. Yet UK assets really don't seem to care anymore. 
you know, we've already seen Sterling go from 170 to 120. It's actually pretty resilient here at 130. Yeah. UK stocks came in 20% last year. They're actually acting pretty well here. UK bonds are well bid. So I think if you want to make a contrarian global call on Brexit, irrespective of the outcome, buy some UK stuff right now, whether it's UK bonds or UK stocks or buy the currency. I think there's money to be made there from a contrarian call. I just wonder if that's a local call or a global call. I'm not sure any risk assets care about anything over the last three months. Maybe you're right. And I think if there's maybe uh, one of the more important divergences right now, despite all the stress and fear in the world, Copper X, great. Copper X, fantastic here. Okay, Christopher Owen, thank you so much. Picking up on the sense of complacency worldwide. It's been a buy everything story for the last three months. Quarter, it's been the gloom of December and the double-digit response of Q1. We are live for the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios and say good morning to all of you across the nation and worldwide for, without question, our equity interview of the day. You can do that with the laureate Robert Schiller of Yale University. It can be housing. It can be our great society. Or it can be on the equity markets. And Bob Schiller, this goes back to 1988. And you and John Y. Campbell got together and did a paper on the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. It has become a cottage industry. We celebrate the Schiller Barclays Global Index coming out. When you released that paper, what, 31 years ago, did you have any idea how CAPE or CAPE would be so dominant? I had no idea, although I, I do uh, have interest in uh, social epidemics. It has become a kind of an epidemic. Your work has become an epidemic. There's no <laughs> well, question parts about of it that. Has. Parts of it <clears throat> has, among some people. But I think it's important to remember that it's just value investing with a, uh, oh, come with on. a better, better measure of value. Everyone knows off of Graham Dodd and Cottle a million years ago that price is compared to earnings is fraught with mismeasurement, vogue, even almost a survivorship bias, et cetera. Does price to cash flow get it done or do you have to go to something more esoteric like the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio? It's interesting you mentioned Graham and Dodd in their 1934 book. I've read it. <laughs> you read Ra- it? Railroad. Yes. What are you looking at me like? Of course I've read it. That was a Railroads. long and technical book. What haven't book. you read? I haven't read the third edition of, of Graham Dodd and Cobb. Tom was you, just you graduating when it was investing. published. You also read securities analysis? Yeah. Okay. You know, my mother That's, inflicted it upon me. This is my mother's. This is my mother's But fault. in that book, he has a suggestion about, he doesn't quite come up with CAPE. But he, he says that it often helps to average earnings over, he said, up to five years, which would be And you went out tennis and all that with a lot of analysis. But is this just fancy extrapolation? I mean, is the real risk here is CAPE just gets you to look out into the future with all the risks of extrapolation? Well, I, I, the reason, one reason why we hire accountants is to measure how well a company is doing. And we expect them to come up with new numbers quarterly, right? That's right. a big job. Uh, and we like numbers that are exciting, so they have to change. But when you get down to it, the, the key measure of the uh, real value of a company is kind of a long-term thing. You know, yeah. they uh, jump around from year to year, quarter right. to quarter. Can I bring in uh, uh, John Farrow? 
professor yeah. who oh, that's got, nice he had 8000 shares of lift on the that's new really IPO nice today. Can, can i can did i did you really get 8000 can shares? i participate in Please? this no no but 8000 shares of lift why are you trying that to make so out cool. i've pi participated in the lift ipo <laughs> why are you trying to cause trouble cuz bob schiller would throw professor, a piece of chocolate professor i didn't in room. Okay. i didn't i have no positions here whatsoever let's talk about the new index professor the schiller's barclays global right. index what is this and why another index well, this is, uh, yeah, there's an awful lot of indexes, aren't there? Uh, this is, uh, a I think, a sensible index that combines value, momentum, and real diversification, which is, uh, it, it's just uh, a sensible thing. To, it, it involves both equity and commodities and fixed incomes. It's kind of designed for a, a, a typical person who's saving for the long term and is willing to... Uh, Wants a value tilt? Because the lazy way of thinking about this, when I have people come on the program and they talk about value, quite often what they're talking about is by the banks here in the United States. From what I hear from you, this is a whole lot bigger than that and a whole lot broader. There's a home bias, which is quite a remarkable phenomenon. Every person wants to invest in his or her own country. So this, uh, this new product uh, divides between the US, Japan, and Europe. So it's not the whole world, but it's uh, among the part of the whole world that has a lot of value. It's, it, it's well diversified. Some people might say, though, having a home bias here in the United States through this bull market has actually been an advantage because you won't well, have made yeah. it much abroad. So, so, Professor, how do you think about those things? The uh, bull market uh, did put the U.S. ahead, but this isn't something that... Uh, we focus right. on. We, we, in fact, the bull market, uh, since it, it, it involved, it brought the CAPE ratio in the United States to the highest uh, of all uh, of 26 countries that we study. Uh, so we're the most expensive right. country in the world. So this is a time not to uh, pull out of America completely, but to okay. pull back. I had on the wall of my office 4,000 years ago an Ibbotson chart out of Yale University. How does your wonderful log linear series from 2003, how does that compare to Mr. Ibbotson's classic work on the S&P 500? Uh, Roger and I are good friends. Are you still on speaking terms? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're on speaking okay. terms. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, he understands value as well, I think. And I, I can't do an explicit comparison with our index. Does your index say buy and hold? Because the persistency, you mentioned momentum. The inertial force of, of the drift of your series is remarkable. And it says just buy them and hold them forever. I'm not a buy and hold uh, advocate because, it, because valuations are always changing. Uh, I'm also not a hold the market advocate. I know that comes out of uh, some models. But the problem with doing that is that you end up holding more of the bubbles, uh, bubble stocks. So you, you, some stocks yeah. are, get highly priced. You never know. They might win. They might, some of them right. will do really well. But John, John, log linear, one standard deviation with huge persistency. We're at about 0.8 standard deviation plus. We are certainly not extended like we were in 2018 or 2000. Yeah, 2018-ish. 
we're not nearly extended like we were uh, 18 months ago. Tom Keen rattling through the charts for us. Professor Schiller, great to catch up with you. I know you've got to get over to the television yeah. studio, so yeah. we want to give you a bit of time to make it. Professor Schiller there, Yale professor Robert Schiller. Great to catch up with you as pizza, always. Yeah, the pizza from New Haven is in his index. Pizza from New yeah, Haven. commodities, equities, bonds, and pizza from New Haven. Is, it good, is it good pizza? Oh, it's the best. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is it? You go to Yale just to get the pizza. Which is your favorite pizza parlor in New Haven? What, uh, can we get a mic on, please, for <laughs> Professor Show? This is the most important part of the interview. The most important. Pepe's Pizza. Pepe's Pizza. Yeah, it goes yes. back to the 1920s. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's still in business, and it lines up. It's great. <clears throat> I did a conference at Quinnipiac last night. I quoted Jacob Viner in 1948 on mercantilism. That would be very cool if you did a course on trade. He was at Harvard, wasn't he? He was in Chicago at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah. But for you and like Doug Irwin to come in from Dartmouth and you guys do a thing at Yale on mercantilism, trade, and all the history you work with, that would be very cool. Okay, we'll do that. We'll work on that. Bob Schiller, thank you so <laughs> much. Thank the laureate you. from Yale University. Seriously, I'm going to put this chart out. I've got to fancy it up. But John Farrell, this new index from Professor Schiller shows a wonderful persistency, which means it's good math. Are you going to put it on Twitter? I'll put it out on Twitter for Lovely. Bloomberg Radio. They'll see it first. We're not going to do Brexit, but we're going to do it, I hope, through a conversational prism, avoiding the minutiae. The backdrop of this is on the green couches at the House of Commons. They're debating, and people who never, ever, ever, it's like a bad Harry Potter sequel. People who never, ever, ever said they changed their mind at Hogwarts are Ian Duncan Smith. A few hours ago, arch-Brexiteer, we made world headlines with him three weeks ago. Ian Duncan Smith says he's going to support Prime Minister May. Dominic Rabb, who doesn't even know if you know who he is. All you need to know, Dominic Rabb is a Brexit hardliner. He'll back the Prime Minister's Brexit deal. We need a legal scholar to take us from the Wars of the Roses forward. Catherine Barnard is at Cambridge University and just extraordinary work on the minutia of all this and particularly European Union law. Catherine, an open question to begin. Are you surprised that arch-Brexiteers are all of a sudden modifying their never-say-never-ever-ever-ever language? No, I'm not surprised because um, what they're really worried about is that if they don't vote for Theresa May's deal, that's our divorce from the European Union, there is a risk that, in fact, um, there might not be a Brexit at all or Brexit will be yeah. delayed for a long period of time. And there's an added incentive, of course, now um, that uh, Theresa May has offered up her own head um, if uh, the Brexiters right. vote in favour of her deal. And of course, it, they're playing a slightly longer game. They want rid of Theresa May so that uh, they can have a leadership context, a contest and they can get one of their number into mm -hmm. number 10. And so they are actually becoming a bit more pragmatic. And for people like Boris Johnson, who said this was the worst deal ever, this was the most repellent yeah. deal... 
suddenly he's discovered it's not quite so repellent after all, particularly if he's got his eye on a vacancy at number 10. Reminds me of Daniel Day-Lewis in the Lincoln movie with Sally Fields in the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> Everybody changed their mind in 1863. That's a different uh, nation, Catherine. Um, okay, all this is great, but as we are at March 29th, and the acuity of Professor Barnard's knowledge, folks, is sick. I mean, she's the one that's looked at the detail. If it's about Ireland and the DUP, our, our Rob Hutton says the DUP is not going to change. Is the line at the border of North Ireland and Ireland, is the line in the middle of the Irish Sea, or can Catherine Barnard tell us where the line's going to be? Well, if the deal is approved, uh, that's a withdrawal agreement, it contains the backstop, which the um, DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, dislikes intensely. However, if um, it, uh, it goes ahead, people in Northern Ireland are actually quite enthusiastic about it because if, in fact, they get the best of both worlds, they get um, continued membership of the customs union and single market for goods. So there will be no hard border in Northern Ireland. And so effectively they stay in parts of the EU, but they still stay in the rest of the United Kingdom. And uh, therefore, any foreign direct investment that might take place in the UK is much more likely to come to Northern Ireland because they have a foot yeah. in both camps. However, the DUP, which is the, still the majority party in Northern Ireland, doesn't right. like it <clears throat> because inevitably it means that there will be a border down the Irish Sea. Why? Because UK goods from the rest of the United Kingdom will not necessarily comply with EU standards. And therefore, as they enter Northern Ireland, so if they go from Liverpool in England to Larne or Belfast in Northern Ireland, they'll have to be checked. And because there's a differential between what goes on in mainland Britain and what goes on in mainland Northern Ireland, they don't like it. And they say, therefore, we want to stop this deal because the DUP say we're unionists. We're part of the union right. with the rest of the United <clears throat> Kingdom. Uh, let me ask you a question. Is Rupert Harrison today, who was uh, head boy at Eton, went to Oxford, and the, Oxford is a school, ma'am. You may have heard of it's. Uh, uh, it's, it's also it's, there's it's, somewhere. It's, it's somewhere a, quite a long way away and less good than Cambridge. Yes, with a different accent and all that. Um, <laughs> but but in in the rarefied world that you and Rupert Harrison trapes in, how do you measure what the people of the United Kingdom want? Because the for Americans, the oddest thing. Are Parliament members voting one way where their constituencies clearly vote the other way? I'd suggest that doesn't happen in America often. It's really difficult, and it depends what you think the role of your MPs are. Are they there um, as essentially your agent, or are they there to represent the wider interests of the country? And this is where a lot of MPs are yeah. deeply conflicted, particularly <clears throat> Labour MPs, where their party is somewhat more pro-European, although it's quite difficult to classify um, than um, the Conservatives, but a lot of them um, are representing northern constituencies, which are overwhelmingly leave constituencies. And it's those MPs that Theresa May is reliant on for her, the vote later today to try to get her, her deal across the line. But there's a problem. You were talking history. I can give you a bit of history, too. Oh, please. I hope this will cheer you up. The Corn Laws, I don't know whether that... Yes, we brought um, that up the means, other day. It means that... So with the Corn yeah. Laws that we had 
um, in the mid uh, 19th century, there were very, very restrictive, right. uh, very protectionist rules on um, which, of course, helped um, the UK business very much indeed. But it, it led to great poverty and great, uh, very serious issues in Northern in Ireland because there was a, the potato famine. There's a desperate need for uh, corn, grain to come in without protectionist tariffs on it. And then what you saw was that Robert Peel, then Prime Minister, recognised that he needed to abolish the protectionist corn laws. And um, he was reliant on votes from the opposition to do so. And he did manage to get the corn laws repealed. Good news for Ireland and good news for the poor. But it meant that when he tried to get his next major piece of legislation through, those very people who had voted for him for the corn laws voted against him. Relying on opposition votes is yeah. not a, a, a long-term strategy. And Robert Peel, uh, the, the government uh, collapsed and the Conservatives were yeah. then out of office for many, many decades. And, and that's a beautiful explanation. We covered this a few days ago, folks. And as I said, my team is efforting John Stuart Mill uh, to be on the show next week. One final question, <laughs> Professor, if I could. I just read a one volume on the Wars of the Roses because I felt like I was an ignorant American as well. Is the Parliament procedure of late medieval, early modern England, is it anything like today? Would the Parliament of the Academy Award movie The Favourite in Queen Anne, would they recognize this craziness of today? Um, I think they wouldn't really recognize the Parliament of today, but I think they would say that there are times when parliaments are absolutely split. What's unusual about the Parliament at the moment, the Westminster Parliament at the moment, it's not just split on party lines, it's it's split on Leave Remain lines. So there are parties within parties. So on the Conservative side, there is the um, European Reform Group, which is essentially a party within a party with its own whipping mechanism. Yeah. On the Labour side, Tom Watson has set up a Social Democratic Forum, which is again a party of the more Blairites um, within the Labour Party. And then, of course, there's this new party, the so-called Tiggers, the um, independent group, yeah. Um, and that's not to mention the other smaller parties like the Lib Dems and uh, the Democratic Unionist Party. And then finally, there's, there's seven seats for Sinn Féin, um, uh, which, uh, who never sit in, in, in Westminster. They have never sat in Westminster. Well, this has been wonderful. Catherine Barnard, thank you so much with Cambridge. A truly one of the experts on the minutiae of the EU and all these relationships with the United Kingdom, as I mentioned. It is simply a college ride-sharing program out of Santa Barbara, California. You get some Toyota Priuses, and down the road, six years or so, you turn it into Lyft. Here is, uh, at the Lyft headquarters, in discussion with the newly minted uh, CEOs, our Emily Chang. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm here with Lyft co-founders Logan Green and John Zimmer. Lyft shares about to start trading on the NASDAQ, big day for you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for sitting down with us. So look, you founded Zimride in 2007. That became Lyft in 2012. You're here beating your biggest rival to going public. How does that feel? 
Logan? Feels pretty amazing, and there's nothing better than we have all of our earliest investors and the team that's been with us, you know, a lot of them since we started in 2007. Just feels incredible. You're here at the new Lyft Driver Center in LA. You're not on the floor of the NASDAQ. Why was it important, John, to do it this way? Well, we want to make a point that you can both invest in communities and build a great business. And our driver community has enabled us to, to be here at this point. So it's fun to ring the bell with several members of our driver community, uh, have many of them participate in the IPO because we gave them uh, a bonus to do so. Uh, and uh, this is just the start of how we partner with cities uh, and uh, the people we serve. And you're giving drivers stock bonuses, right? That's, yeah, that's we're, kind we're, of unusual. Yeah, we're giving a cash bonus and the ability to participate through their friends and family program. So let's talk about costs. There's a lot of question, how can you bring costs down? You brought in $2.2 billion in revenue last year, but you also lost some $900 million. How quickly can you bring those costs down, John? Well, I think it's important to have the context that what we're going after is a trillion dollar market opportunity. Every year in the US, Americans spend $9,000 owning and operating their car and using it only 5% of the time. And so this massive market shift, just like entertainment has gone streaming, uh, is happening with car ownership. And we're investing to take advantage of that. Our economics are improving, uh, and uh, we're very confident in the path ahead. So, Logan, in your risk factors, you say you may never be profitable. I mean, how do you convince investors that they should be betting on the, the optimistic here? <laughs> If, if you dig in on the numbers, every year the economics of the business improve, and we are confident that the business will be very profitable. Uh, there are, of course, risk factors, but we are making tremendous progress going after this you know, once-in-a-generation shift where this entire industry, potentially, a $1.2 trillion market could flip from an ownership model to a service model, and we're leading the way there. So could you be profitable in five years? We can't talk on forward projections, uh, but as we said, we're very confident in the long-term profitability of the model. Now, in the weeks leading up to this, I've noticed I'm a Lyft customer, I'm an Uber customer, steep discounts. How, how is that sustainable? And how does that factor into your customer acquisition costs in the future? You know, w one thing to know is that there's actually been rapidly decreasing numbers of discounts in the market. The times that they are used, we're really managing the bal balance of our own market. So something a lot of folks don't, you know, don't think about. Uh, but every year, Americans make New Year's resolutions. They come back, make a resolution to lose weight and save money. And that means they go out less. But it's amazing what a 10% off coupon can do. It can break a New Year's resolution very quickly. And we do that because we have a lot of drivers on the road. Last year, 1.9 million drivers drove for Lyft. So we have a lot of drivers on the road, and when they're not busy, that's bad for business. So we'll give out targeted coupons as a way to take care of drivers and make sure that their business stays busy. Uh, but it's a very rational market, and, and that's really the, the reason of driving it. So you're speaking to something. You're making choices behind the scenes. You are prioritizing, at times, market share over margins or margins over market share. So uh, this, that, that's not the right characterization. Th this is really uh, about the most effective way to drive growth and profit in the business is by running a balanced marketplace. So the, the coupons and managing seasonality are really about keeping a, a very healthy, vibrant marketplace and keeping drivers engaged because you know the next week, after a slow week, the next week you have, say, St. Patrick's Day. 
and it's roaring and we couldn't possibly get as many drivers as we need on the road. So it's an important engagement. So John, let me put it this way. If you focus on margins one day, does that give Uber an opportunity to claw back market share another day? We're not focused on our competition, we're focused on what we control. And so every day we're thinking about how to serve our drivers and passengers, build a long-term model, uh, pushing down our operating costs and like this driver center, the operating costs of our drivers. And, and that's what's allowed us to go from just over 20% market share two years ago to nearly 40% market share. We don't focus on market share. Uh, we just execute uh, and serve our, our constituents. You did grow market share considerably over yeah. the last couple of years, 22 to some 39%. At yeah. the same time, Uber, I know you don't focus too much on the competition, as you say, going through sexual harassment allegations, a delete Uber campaign. How much do you think Uber's mistakes helped you? And then conversely, if Uber stops making mistakes, does that hurt you, Logan? I think what we, what we saw in 2016 was something really unique happened, and we hit scale in most of our major markets. So in this business, if you're operating subscale, your pickup times are too high. But when you hit scale, and you can reliably deliver a three-minute pickup time on average, uh, that's a huge unlock. That's what it takes to compete. So before 2016, we didn't have scale. In 2016, we hit scale. And that's when we started competing on execution and delivering a better experience. And we were taking share well before uh, any of the competition's missteps. And that's continued and accelerated since. Drill down into this market share number for me. How much does that fluctuate? Is that based on total spend? How, where does that number come from? Uh, the, the number used in the prospectus was based on rides. Um, yeah, and it, it changes every day and, and every month, but the, the trend has been uh, very good for Lyft. So is getting to 50% market share in the U.S. more important than expanding internationally? Logan. Our, our focus is always on taking care of our customer. So we don't set market share goals. We focus on delivering the world's best transportation to our customers. And so we do think about international. Every year we sit down and we make the trade-off. Can we go deeper on this $1.2 trillion market in the US and deliver better transportation to our customers here? Or is it time to go abroad? And so a little over a year ago, we launched Canada, and that's been a great experience for us. Uh, and we'll continue to consider international opportunities. I think it's sort of a great call option, uh, but right now... What do you mean by a great call option? You know, I think it's, it's a great... There are many future growth opportunities in this business, whether we're going deeper in North America or going international. So we look at that as, as a call option for the business, uh, and we may choose to do that someday, but we don't have current plans right now. If you were to launch in an international market, a new one outside of Canada, John, what are some exciting markets? I mean, what are some markets that you've looked yeah, at? We believe there needs to be you know, at least two players in a given market, uh, and so we would look to markets where there's just one, uh, and that would be the, the best opportunity should we, go to, should we decide to go international, except for China. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's talk about founder control. You have a lot of voting power, almost 50% voting power, but you hold 5% of shares, and there was a lot of backlash when this came out. What's your argument that that's the best way to govern this company? Yeah, we put a lot of thought into this with our board and a lot of our investors, and we really wanted to set the company up to go after the long term and make the right investments to seize this long term opportunity. We think that's going to be necessary to deliver the largest shareholder returns over time. 
And so dual class was an important piece of it. We designed it, you know, John and I together still have less than majority control. We uh, selected an independent chair, Sean Argawal uh, has stepped in as the independent chair of the, the Lyft board. And we have, I think, an incredible board from a diverse set of backgrounds set up to guide the company and we think collectively that's the right package. But there are concerns, John, that this won't lead to the appropriate checks and balances you need on a public company. And we've seen situations at Google and Facebook where founder-led decisions were made that maybe weren't the best decisions. How do you respond to that? I'll respond by saying we've been balanced in how we've, we've uh, put this together. As Logan mentioned, we have an independent chair, we have a diverse board, we have a great uh, broad set of shareholders. Uh, and uh, you know, when, when we talk to our investors, we let them know that we care deeply about their views, care deeply about incorporating them, and our, and our track record shows that. You've been investing heavily in self-driving technology. How much and how fast do you think self-driving technology will bring your costs down? I think we're still years away from self-driving. How many years? I, I, I wish I knew myself. Uh, I don't, but you know, I, I think there's, there's kind of a conception that there's gonna be a magical self-driving vehicle that'll appear one day uh, and do every ride. But the way we see it playing out from all of our work in the space is that the first generation of vehicles will only be able to do a subset of the rides. So I think it'll be critical that they're rolled out on a platform like ours where you can count on drivers to fulfill every request, right? It may be a long time for security reasons before an, auton an empty autonomous vehicle is allowed to do a pickup at an airport, let alone drive in extreme weather, drive at night, drive at certain speeds, through bridges and tunnels. There's all sorts of restrictions that the first generation of vehicles will have. So I think we're a number of years out from the first generation and that may be able to do, say, 10% of rides. And then the second generation could do 30% of rides. I think you'll see, you know, it'll be quite some time, you know, probably a decade or two before you have a car that, you know, can do every single ride out there. So I think a, a network application uh, for deploying self-driving cars will be the, you know, majority case for the years to come. Then, in the meantime, John, you know, I know you're very focused on changing trends in, in car ownership, but in many cities where Lyft and Uber are big operators, you're actually seeing an increase in cars on the road. You're seeing more concession. You're actually seeing more car ownership. What evidence have you seen that car ownership trends are actually changing? Well, I think actually we've seen like peak, peak car ownership. And uh, if you look at the national numbers, you look at uh, people that are purchasing or deciding not to purchase. If you look at uh, millennials that are coming of age and waiting or not getting their license. Um, and if you look at our growth, uh, I think there's uh, you know, a pretty obvious trend. Last year, uh, over 300,000 Lyft customers got rid of a car. Uh, and so uh, some families are going from two car to one car, but it is it has begun. In your roadshow, you really talked about how you don't do food delivery, you don't do trucking. Lyft is about focus. That said, you are getting into to new businesses, scooters, for example. What is going to be your biggest source of new revenue in the future? Will it be scooters, Logan? Will it be international expansion? Will it be something we don't know about? We, we compete with car ownership. So when you open up the Lyft app, we want to provide you every possible option that you could be trading off, whether that's public transit or connecting you with a Lyft to public transit, whether it's a bike or a scooter, a shared ride, a regular Lyft, a luxury ride. We want to provide you with any possible option. So we see competing with the car that's parked in your driveway 
as as the primary goal. And speaking up about the future of drivers, you know, I know self-driving technology is very important. It is long-term, as you say. But so much of Lyft has been about the values, treating customers well, treating drivers well. If you're investing in self-driving technology, doesn't that mean all of those jobs go away? And doesn't that sort of undermine those? No, I, I don't think those jobs go away at all. In fact, we're going to need many more drivers over the next several years. Think about today, uh, the entire ride-sharing market in the US does just 1% of miles traveled. As that goes to 10% of miles traveled, you would need either 10 <laughs> times the number of drivers. If we had 2 million, nearly 2 million drivers now, uh, we're talking 20 million drivers. Obviously, there's room for both increasing the number of work opportunities and uh, adding uh, autonomous vehicles. So where's Lyft in five years? In five years? In five years. In five years, we want you to be subscribing to a package of miles. So similar to the way you have a, you have a cell phone and you subscribe to a number of minutes, we want people to completely get rid of their car and jump into the world of transportation as a service and subscribe to miles so that you don't have to think about each trip. You're just fully on board in the Lyft ecosystem. So something like Lyft Prime, is this like a monthly thing, a yearly thing? It, it'll still have to take shape, but I, I, I think people will be subscribing to, to miles. All right, Lyft as a service. That's interesting. Logan Green, John Zimmer, co-founders of Lyft, shares about to start trading. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations. Thanks, Thanks for having so us. Back to you. That was Lyft co-founders Logan Green and John Zimmer talking about the IPO with Bloomberg's Emily Chang. Lyft is set to open in the next hour, and we'll be bringing you more coverage. I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.